Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 92. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about Frankenstein with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, published by Brazos. And she's the editor of a series with B&H called A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, which includes a number of classics, including Frankenstein. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber and Josh, this was a rich conversation with Dr. Pryor about Frankenstein. It was fun to dig into the details, the themes, even the structure of the novel, and to think a little bit about some of its afterlife and how it might serve as a model for engaging our own culture as well. What did you two make of our conversation with Dr. Pryor? I really love the way that she brought out so many interesting theological connections in the book, um, either themes that are sort of adjacent to theology or themes that theology engages really well. But these aren't just abstract theological themes. These are themes that are deep within us. They're some of the the most basic questions that we ask, and they tap on the way that we're made um, to live in relation to God and others. And so I I thought she brought that out well and helped us see the richness of that novel and and how it makes us process things. Yeah. In addition to that, I love how she looked at several different characters in the book and and started talking about that relational connection, that thing that everybody longs for, the deep uh, longing inside of us and how it was represented in the everybody from the captain of the ship that rescues Dr. Frankenstein at the beginning all the way through to the monster as he's trying to sort out what it is to be loved and accepted and, and be rejected and how that kind of represents us as humans and the the tendency to want that and also how we react to it. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Pryor. Thanks for having me. So how about we begin by talking about what it is that fascinates you about the story of Frankenstein? Well, that is a great question. And I'll be completely transparent and say that um, my area of expertise is the English novel of the 18th and 19th century as it was developing. And Frankenstein has for a long time been sort of my least favorite novel in that class that I teach, but I always felt obligated to teach it simply because it has an important place in the development of the novel. It represents the romantic period so well. And so I have taught it for many years out of obligation, but as with any work of great literature, the more you read it, the more you see in it, the more I've come to appreciate it and love it um, and be fascinated by it. And so, um, so I've slowly fallen in love with it over the years. And I think what I love about it most, and I'm sure we'll get into more of this, is the way that Mary Shelley is writing 
a capital R romantic story as a romantic herself, married to the quintessential romantic Percy Bysshe Shelley. Yet she's really honestly grappling with and wrestling with those values um, of, of her age and, and her life uh, in, a, in such an honest way. It's such a model for us um, to see someone living and believing in a certain sort of aesthetic and ethical view and yet questioning it so deeply and, um, and grappling with its implications in her life. And I think that's amazing. I'm wondering if you could tell us what are some of the big things that you pull out of Frankenstein when you read it? What are the things that have impacted you the most or that have captivated your imagination the most about the novel? Well, of course, the subtitle of the novel is The Modern Prometheus. And the novel quotes heavily from John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is a retelling of God's creation of the first man, the first woman, and their fall from um, from Eden and from grace. And the novel is so much about those things. It is about the relationship of a creator to his creation. It presents a picture of a God who, you know, a creator who abandons his creation. And these are questions that everyone grapples with today still um, that obviously Shelley was grappling with. And so even though it's a, a very interesting story, philosophically it's just so profound and deep and it's and it, and it wraps all of these big questions about theology and um ontology and epistemology into this really crazy story of a of a young man who's ambitious and um and scientific scientifically minded and he wants to pursue um, limits that no one has uh, has pursued before. And so it's a human story, and yet it's just profoundly theological. Just to connect the two, is there a specific aha moment where you went from Frankenstein was kind of on the shelf, something you had to teach, and then the way you're talking about right now with the depth and things, was there a specific aha moment, uh, a vignette in the story or anything like that that sparked that? Yeah. Um, so I think there are several key passages in the novel that really made me um, fall in love with it. And one of them is the scene. And by the way, for anyone listening, I suppose there were, you know, maybe there are some spoilers here. <laughs> so um, in what I talk about, but I'll try not to be too specific. But when when Victor Frankenstein finally um confronts um the creature that he has made, um, and the creature exclaims his despair at having been abandoned by the one who created him. Um, we've seen that the creature already has has wanted love, has wanted companionship, has sought it out and been rejected. And so when he's finally reunited with his creator um, and asks him for a companion, we encounter this this monstrous um, creation who has done so much evil and harm and yet, we can see that much of uh, of the evil he has committed is because he has been rejected by his creator and because he is lonely. And of course, that is not the picture that I have of God, but that is the picture that so many people do have of God. And the fact that Shelley writes this um, this moving um, scene to garner our sympathy for this monster, even at the same time you know, we reject his violence and his evil is just a powerful picture, I think, of many of the questions that we have to face every day with the evil around us and the people who commit such evil and our questions about a God who could permit that kind of evil. 
You know, I'm thinking back to when I first read Frankenstein when I was in school and sort of the commentary that I was receiving, um, particularly in like a Christian educational setting. And Frankenstein was always so heavily critiqued precisely for that reason, because it's like, look at this guy. He's saying that if you don't love me, then I'm going to have, then I have license to do all of these horrible things and I get to be a terrible person. And, you know, it, so there was almost this guilt for not for being the kind of creature that fundamentally is made to be in relation. Um, and that when you don't have that, 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 that breaks you in some ways, it's very significant ways. Then later when I, when I was reading it later, I saw something else in it with regards to that, a different way of looking at that. And it's, it's kind of like thanks to Augustine and, and some others that our primordial question, like the, the fundamental question that we are always asking is, do you love me? Mm. And that is, that's like what Augustine talks about with us being desirous beings that we're always ecstatically extending outside of ourselves to, to understand ourselves, you know, who am I to you and who are you to me is what he asks God, you know, and that that is the fundamental question that he has, that he's directing to God in the confessions to be able to actually make sense of his life and understand himself. And I think back particularly in those scenes where Frankenstein and the, the creature are talking, and that's exactly what the creature is asking is, do you I love know. me? Who am I to you? And who are you to me? And that that is our fundamental question. And, and, the, and the novel raises other questions too, because even as we're in this moment where our sympathies are elicited for both Frankenstein, because he's in this ethical dilemma, and also for the creature, because he didn't ask to be created, he didn't ask to be born. But at the same time, all of this pain and suffering um, would have been avoided uh, er, so much earlier on if Victor Frankenstein had not so intentionally and defiantly try to exceed um, the bounds of human limitations. Um, and that is what opened up this sort of Pandora's box. Um, and so we are faced with, you know, this is one reason why the novel is considered the first science fiction novel ever written, um, because it is asking these questions about what we can and should do as human beings with scientific knowledge. Frankenstein is such a fascinating story for that very reason, especially as aspirations in technology and science have increased so much in recent years with the rise of the transhumanist movement, this idea that we could transcend our bodily and physical limitations through a, a number of ways, you know, Im improving us by means of like nanotechnology or through some sort of like merging with the inorganic material, becoming cyborg-like or even downloading our minds to a, a supercomputer of some kind. What, what do you think Frankenstein has to say to those modern aspirations? And, and why haven't, for example, transhumanists learned the lesson that Mary Shelley was teaching them a long time ago? Well, that really is a good question. Why haven't they learned the lesson? And um, I, you know, my sort of flippant, but not really flippant, answer to that question as an English professor is because we in general don't read enough books. We don't read great works of fiction that have sort of 
beaten out the path in front of us um, so that we don't have to make the same mistakes. Um, and I, I, you know, again, I say that I'm flippant, but not flippant because obviously, you know, we are still going to struggle and ask questions as human beings, but so many of the questions that we ask are the same ones that human beings have been asked since human beings have existed. And the answers don't change all that much. So um, that's one reason I'm passionate about, uh, about literature because it teaches us so much about life. Um, but in terms of this um, topic specifically, this transhumanism and, and sort of altering who we are as human beings simply because science allows us to, um, I mean, I, you know, it, these are, are difficult questions. I don't want to pretend that they're easy because so many of the things that we now take as take for granted as benefiting us as human beings, like modern medicine, were things that, um, were ethical dilemmas when they first were um, being explored. So these aren't easy questions um, and they aren't black and white. So for me, more as, as a, a literature person, as someone interested in theology and philosophy as well, um, I think it just helps so much to go always return to telos, always return to purpose. What is our purpose as human beings? What is the purpose of anything that is in, um, in this world of existence, including suffering, including pain, including relationships um, and, and illness and, and goodness, all of those things have a purpose for us and human beings have a purpose. And you don't see any consideration of that on the part of Victor Frankenstein. You know, he's a young college student who's smitten with science um, and actually even reading in many cases, bad sources, which is something we all should pay attention to. And just simply, he becomes so driven in this pursuit of knowledge that he actually abandons the relationships that are important to him and his best friend is sacrificed, his family members are sacrificed. Ultimately, you know, the love of his life is sacrificed, um, all because he has the single minded um, passion for this pursuit that becomes to refer again to Augustine becomes a disordered love. Um, that love of knowledge, which is good, um, becomes disordered because it out um, because it replaces more important loves like love of family um, and love of, of nature and love of ultimately of God. That point about tell us is so important. I, I think, was it Henry David Thoreau who said that, you know, all this, and this was in the 19th century, all this move towards efficiency, efficiency is just improved means towards an unimproved end. And that, mm. that, that point about tell us, I just think is, is so vital for this conversation. I kind of want to um, think a little bit more about Victor Frankenstein and kind of taking his his um, perspective in the novel um, and and kind of appropriating it subjectively. Like you can definitely, and we talked about this, the monster, see this experience of divine abandonment, the fear of divine abandonment. I mean, I, I could see reading that like from the perspective of the creatures thinking, sometimes do I feel like that towards God myself? Do I think that I am this monstrous, uh, monstrous creation that he is just rejected, you know? And do I feel like I am that? Um, which I, I can see walking through that with students being very, very powerful. But on the other hand, thinking about Frankenstein, you know, maybe appropriating this to a more of a modern context, maybe our quest is not so much for quote unquote scientific knowledge. I mean, technological advancement, sure. But but I'm thinking in particular, just um, 
ambition in general, right? Like achieving, growing, creating something, becoming powerful. Um, and those are the things that we see so many people. And I think especially in Christian circles, because we'll baptize that, right? Like we're doing this for the kingdom, quote unquote. And so we we think that that's a good and worthy pursuit. And then you do sacrifice all of these other things for that. Um, so I, I'd like to hear if you have thoughts about that in particular, but then also, um, what happens when in that pursuit, you're down the road on it and you realize you've created something that you did not mean or want to create. And then what do you do? Like, I think that's the question for Frankenstein is like, now what do you do with this? Um, and I think that might be also a good question for us today in the church. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so to kind of get to the first question about just Frankenstein and, and how his, his pursuit of, of his ambition, regardless of what his, his ambition was and, and what that can teach us. I think that's so important um, to, to think about because, and, and this, again, I, I, I will do the sort of English professor kind of um, answer first. And that is uh, the structure of the novel is so important and helpful to us in answering that question. And those who aren't familiar with the novel and just have seen some of the film versions or, you know, we sort of understand or know the story just through popular culture and the and our social imaginary. Um, but when you open up the book and you realize it begins with a letter from this guy named Robert Walton to his sister and it, and you're wondering, wait, did I pick up the wrong book? Because we don't even hear about someone named Frankenstein for a while. Um, but this epistolary format to the novel, which tells the story of the creature who tells the story of Frankenstein, who tells the story of this Robert Walton writing the letters is a layered approach because Robert Walton is like a doppelganger for Victor Frankenstein. He also is someone who is ambitious in his own way, um, trying to sail to the North Pole and go where no other human beings have gone before. Um, and he encounters someone like him in, in Victor Frankenstein, who has done a similar, you know, had similar ambition. And so those two stories are supposed to be commentaries on one another. And um, we're supposed to really, the text helps us to interpret Victor Frankenstein's story through the outer frame of Robert Walton's story. And Robert Walton, you know, spoiler alert, sort of reluctantly um, and hesitantly does turn back, like literally turn back on his on his um, journey because he has learned reluctantly the lesson of Victor Frankenstein. And so as readers, we're supposed to also kind of learn that lesson, too. Um, and I think your your insight about how this applies. I mean, this isn't just about taking pieces of bodies out of graves and assembling them on a dark stormy night until they come to life again. That is, you know, seems so ridiculous. Um, but we all have temptations to do that sort of thing, to take things and apart from their purpose, assemble them in some way so that we can achieve some dream or desire of ours that is out of order. Um, and we do that in the church too. Um, and maybe we actually today have a church culture 
that encourages those things because we we send this message out explicitly or implicitly over and over about doing great things for God or you know or um, being you know being you know awesome for Jesus um, doing more than anyone else has done before and uh, a really contrasting story not to get off onto this but just to point to the first sort of opposing example that comes to my mind is that great story um, told in the in the film uh, of by Terrence Malick um, a recent film a hidden life right the story of of an Austrian man who was no one and just simply by refusing to to bow literally to Hitler, um, he was tortured and, and lost his life and became a saint simply by living a, um, a hidden life. Um, and so those are two really contrasting pictures. What do we do when, you know, when we've opened that Pandora's box and we've gone too far? I mean, the only answer that I that I know um, is, you know, as a Christian, as someone who does believe in a kind of creator who's not like Victor Frankenstein, but is to just like repent and surrender that to God to make um, good out of it as only he can. Um, but we actually are in an age, I think, in the church where we we are seeing um, many opportunities to repent and change go unheeded, actually. Um, institutions um, are more, you know, are too often placed ahead of people because institutions are also kind of an expression of worldly ambition and power that um, are creating some monsters that are spinning out of control. I think it's really interesting how Walton at the very beginning too is writing to his sister and he, the way he describes um, Frankenstein, he, he, he talks about a man who's, he, he likes to, he senses his own loneliness and kind of projects it onto Frankenstein too. And says, I think I found a kin, have a kinship, a deepness with this guy that right from the very beginning. And, and uh, I think it's really interesting how you're talking about how it frames the entire story. And eventually he turns back and repents. Um, what other characters in the book kind of represent that relational longing, that that longing for uh, to connect with somebody? They've been kind of disoriented to that point, and then they kind of have come to kind of realizations throughout the book. This is another thing that's so fascinating structurally about the novel because it is, you know, it, it, it is a frame narrative, but it's a frame around a frame around a frame. And so when I when I teach the novel, I will often um, literally draw on the board for my students kind of the story within the story within the story because another part of of this Frankenstein story that's central is the story of this family that um, that the creature observes in their little cottage in the woods it's a loving family of a father and a brother and sister um, living this very idyllic romantic lifestyle in this in this cottage and Frankenstein, his first real encounter with with human beings is this loving family that he wants to be part of that he yearns to be part of and of course he ends up being rejected on by them because he's so frightful to them even though he doesn't mean to be and, and that sets him in a, on his course um, and so there are layers and layers of relationships in this novel and even though there are romantic relationships such as victor's um with um his, with elizabeth his 
um, beloved and also um, uh, the family in, in, in the cottage. It's really more a friend, a story about friendship and the need, the human need that we have for companionship. And I think it's, that's why the novel opens up with this figure of Walton who discovers in Victor Frankenstein a sort of kindred spirit. Um, and so it's, and I talk about this in the introduction to my edition, how even though you know this is a, a capital R romantic novel, yet it's really more concerned with um, friendship and companionship than it is um, sort of erotic romantic relationships, even though those are in it. And so the novel invites us to examine all of these parallels, parallel um, events, but also parallel relationships and um, foil relationships because there are so so many of them in the book and and they 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 help us each one helps us to interpret the other thinking about the different layers in the book too um especially walton and his change of course as a result of the story um that's actually quite remarkable and i think this goes back to your earlier point of we don't read enough books because they have the capacity stories have the capacity or they should um, to show us the end of an action or the end of a pursuit. And, and we are responsive to that. Like we don't think, oh, I can do it differently. <laughs> we actually say, okay, probably my end is going to be something very similar to this. And then you, you course correct as a result of it. And I just think that it reminds me of the book of Proverbs, like mm -hmm. that, that idea of heeding instruction um, is something that allows us to grow in wisdom. Like a scoffer is someone who refuses to learn from another or refuses to take instruction. And so that theme of wisdom, I think is quite interesting looking at even how that's sort of performed in the text. Yeah, and another thing that's surprising about, um, about Frankenstein is how much it's concerned with human virtue, um, which is a very you know old fashioned classical and biblical idea, not really romantic in the way that um, the Shelleys uh, represent the romantic period. Um, uh, Mary Shelley really is interested in in virtue and, and vice and the kinds of habits and practices and courses of action that can cultivate one or the other, because these things, again, they aren't instantaneous. Um, we develop virtue or we develop vice. Um, not just from one decision, but from many kinds of decisions. And again, I think that's something that is laid out for us in Victor Frankenstein's life. Um, he made many small decisions along the way that led to this um, sort of tragic outcome. So when I think of uh, classical literature and, and books like, like The Count of Monte Cristo, like this elaborate revenge, like he's been wronged, and it goes through this elaborate plot and it all comes together with their revenge, all that kind of different thing. And then you look at the monster in Frankenstein and he just outright throttles the people. Like he just, the violence is just explicit. It's there. He's wronged. He kills. There's violence right away. What do you, what do you think it's rep representing? Like the monsters representing in the just immediate act of violence to have revenge or, or even get back at his creator, the people that harm him right at the beginning, it, at the, right in the process, he strangles him, and then his creator ultimately, where he goes and does that. Yeah, I mean, I think that violence is part of the human condition, um, 
as is our innate desire for justice. I think that's part of what is motivating um, the creature is he feels as though a great injustice has been perpetrated on him first in being created and then in being rejected and isolated and alone. And of course, what he does is only adds to the injustice. Yet, I think for many of us, um, for most of us in human history, the, the same is true. Like we commit violence, whether literal or metaphorically, um, upon others many times because we feel that we have been unjustly treated and we don't know how to really achieve justice. I mean, another great work of literature that I think shows this so well is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, um, where he's giving a picture of, you know, of the of the front era of the French Revolution, uh, which was started because of injustices that had been perpetrated for so long, yet rather than correcting that just that injustice it just resulted in even more injustices in the opposite direction. Um, and so that too is a kind of lesson in virtue. Virtue is, um, is the moderation between a, an extreme of excess or an extreme of deficiency. And so often we take the pendulum and swing it to the opposite extreme uh, rather than resting it in that sort of that in the golden mean where there is neither too much nor too little of, of whatever it is that we're trying to correct. Um, it's really hard to get it exactly right, but but so often people don't even know, they don't, we don't even realize that that's what we're supposed to be striving for um, because we think that, you know, overcorrection is the way to correct, but it's not, it's just replacing one vice with another. We have the, the relatability of the monster, right? With being wronged and all that kind of different thing. and searching for acceptance and love and then the immediate ability to throttle his victims when he doesn't get it do you think that kind of adds to the relatability of the monster it's kind of we're all feeling that stuff going on in our heart wanting to be longed and when, when we're rejected he the, he's he's able to lash out immediately um you know in a twisted sinful sense mm -hmm. i relate to that right i relate to the fact that i can that i could that he immediately got his he, he could act when he was wronged. No, I, I think that is sort of an archetypal human response that we would have in any situation like this. I'm reminded of um, what Aristotle says in Poetics about tragedy, about how a perfect tragedy is one that, that balances well um, pity and fear, right? And so pity is the, is the impulse that makes us want Fear is the impulse that makes us want to run away. And certainly the creature is, is frightening and, and scary and makes us want to run away. But pity is the emotion that makes us want to um, go towards something. And so when, when those two things are in perfect balance, the fear that makes us want to run away and the pity that makes us want to move forward toward that person, we're sort of stuck in this tension um, that is a is a healthy tension, actually. And Aristotle talked about how um, tragedy, um, as well as comedy, that, that good literature um, train helps us to train our emotions because we can experience these feelings um, we can really experience the feelings, but they're in uh, 
you know, a vicarious kind of experience, a, a situation where not, it's not a real one in front of us, but when we experience it through fiction or through drama, um, we're training the emotions in the same way that we would be if we were facing that real situation. I, I just was thinking about our episode uh, with Murray Stiller on horror films and talking about how when we see something scary like that, but we're in the context of our home and it's safe. And so it's like, we're able to explore our fears, um, yes. but you get sort of a dopamine hit. He was explaining when, when that happens, but what you're bringing out here, I think is in addition to that is it's sure the dopamine hit, but also it's this opportunity to cultivate a, a virtue to process through what that, what that's like um, and to cultivate those habits. I think that's a great addition. And, and this is true of, you know, in a, in a way, in less emotionally dramatic terms as well. I mean, cognitive scientists have shown that when we're reading literary fiction, um, we're actually using the same part of our, our brains that we would use, you know, as we're sort of judging and assessing and predicting an outcome or a situation when we read, uh, we're using the same part of our brains that we would use when we're actually talking to real people or going in a, through a real situation. So we're actually practicing those parts of our brain that we need to use in decision-making and interpretation every day. Um, so literature offers us all kinds of opportunities to practice training our emotions, but also to, um, to train our cognitive skills in a way that ends up translating to everyday life in, in helpful and healthy ways. I, I didn't grow up with being able to sit in front of YouTube and just watch it. And I have three boys and, and it's a real, it's really different from interacting with literature and stepping into that and using your imaginative and, and processing these cognitive mm -hmm. things than just being entertained by a screen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it plays emotions up and down as opposed to you're walking through things by reading. So mm -hmm, it's a very mm -hmm. interesting dynamic. Mm. I just want to read this. It's famous, but it, it's, so wise here. So this is um, Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. There's something to this idea of telling truth slant or indirectly. Um, our minds respond to it in a different way. They have to engage it. You know, our minds have to engage. They have to re respond. A truth that's too big can blind us by being too dazzling, as Dickinson says. But I think, you know, YouTube or Twitter can also blind us by being not dazzling enough. Like we just absorb it without any indirection, without any slant. And so somewhere in the middle, uh, you know, of being so blinded by something so dazzling and so big and so um, overcoming that we can't handle it um, versus something that's just so, you know, just so nothing that we don't have to engage with it at all. I, I don't know if that's making any sense, but. It, it totally makes sense. And it reminds me of a study that I once uh, was introduced to by some Italian scholars in the field of like social psychology, where they actually were able to demonstrate how Harry Potter had an effect on children in leading to less prejudicial responses in certain situations. And this idea of like a true slant, I mean, you could sort of, you know, sit down and try to explain why, you know, certain thoughts or feelings are, are wrong but you could sort of just 
get that that slanted truth as you're saying and 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 sort of be be impacted by the reading of narrative that sort of describes protagonists responding in certain ways and then you just sort of you know begin to embody that and and imitate that yeah the, you know there's a famous line from um Horace's the art of poetry where he talks about um you know the good good poets both teach and delight or instruct and delight and um, that word delight is really interesting because it's talking about illumination and enlightenment but it's also referring to the fact that it's a way of shedding light in a way that we have to kind of work at it right so we we get the sense of discovery rather than just being told something when we're shown it there's something and there's research that backs this up too that I can't, you know, um, recall uh, specifically, but when we it's, 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 it's research in the area of education, that when we feel like we've discovered something, um, rather than been, being told something, it lasts longer. So that's what, you know, telling the truth slant is giving us just enough so that we can feel like we've discovered it ourselves. Um, yeah, or even maybe to, to nuance it even more, reading this, it's, it seems to be describing the experience of encounter, right? Mm. Like different from I'm going to go out and discover like Victor Frankenstein, you know, the world is this thing out there and I'm going to go and figure it out. But it's like truth is something that comes and encounters and woos us, but it doesn't like impose itself upon us. So yes. it kind of awakens our agency in important ways, but it's also like tender with mm -hmm. us in that mm -hmm. sort of revelatory experience. I don't know. I just love that mm -hmm. so much. It's more like a dance than an assault. Exactly. Exactly. I have a hot take question for you. All right. We know there's like a million different, not a million, you know, but several different versions of the movie Frankenstein. So which one did you one enjoy the most and or two rep represents the book the most? It could be two different movies. It could be the same thing. Which one? I am not familiar with the films at all. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I sort of know them from being out there, images of them, but I don't know that I've actually sat down and watched one from start to finish. Of course, I know the, um, the uh, uh, what is his name? Marty Feldman, <laughs> classic, you know, walk this way um, spoof. So, um, yeah, I, I did. I did at the beginning of the pandemic um, as I was actually getting ready to uh, work on this edition of Frankenstein, I did watch the National Theater in England. I think it was that put on um, a, a wonderful version of Frankenstein on the stage. Um, and I think the stage versions can be very good. I prefer those to the film versions that I that I'm aware of. Well, if not film versions and adaptations of the Frankenstein story, what about the reception of the Frankenstein story? Is there a, is there a film that um, strikes you as as sort of being a good sort of carrier of the baton of sort of the legacy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? I'm thinking of, for example, Blade Runner, you know, that moment when the replicant sort of ascends a kind of ziggurat looking structure and meets his maker. It's very, I think, 
you know, heavily theological, the use of the ziggurat structure there in, in sort of this futuristic version of LA, which actually as of two years ago is now set in the past, which is always fun. Um, but I'm thinking of other films like, you know, even Rocky Horror Picture Show or, um, or Ex Machina with like a much more feminist take on the Frankenstein story. Is there anything in the reception of the Frankenstein story that strikes you as, as being a good sort of example of the legacy of Mary Shelley? Well, I admit that I watch very few, if any, science fiction films. But what I want to say about these that I'm sort of, you know, aware of at any rate is, is that this is another um, indication of of the novel's greatness and in its own and its singularity, really, because there are lots of great novels that I, you know, masterpieces in literature. But Frankenstein is, you know, it, it's its own myth, and I think it's a testament to this archetype that Shelley tapped into. I mean, she goes back to Prometheus. She goes back to Eden as presented by uh, John Milton in Paradise Lost and presents this mythical story that has captured our imaginations such that it can be retold in so many different ways and so many different forms and so many different settings. Uh, and even though the, you know, the details of the story change, the archetype is, is the same. And, and that's the genius of the work. Um, and so uh, that's all the more reason to sit down and read the novel if you haven't, because all of these other versions of it are generated from this, but it also comes from something much more ancient and um, transcendent than than even the story of Frankenstein. So, Dr. Pryor, we started the conversation with you talking about Mary Shelley a little bit as a figure and how she was situated amongst the romantics, um, but she also had some ways that she pushed against the ethos and the culture in which she found herself, and she did it through her writing. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of bring that out a little bit more, but also apply it to us today, just in terms of how we should think about maybe following after some of her, her ways or her approaches. Um, how do we think about our current context and ways that we can expand the imagination of our context or bring up uh, different ways of thinking about things um, in, in ways that were as effective as, as, she, as her ways in the novel? Now, Mary Shelley's life was so tragic in so many ways. Um, I, in my volume, I, I give you know a pretty brief description of her very complicated life. But she was born to um, very well known, um, uh, very well known mother and father who were known in progressive circles um, for their promotion of socialism and free love and kind of wanting to um, tear down all traditional institutions. And so she was raised among these lively, educated adults and given open access to her father's library. Um, but her mother died 10 days after giving birth to her from um, infection related to childbirth, actually. And then her own children that she bore with Percy Shelley, um, you know, 
and, and and living this lifestyle where they were tramping all over Europe um, in hard conditions and in ill health and and all but one of her children died either in infancy or or childhood and of course all these things hadn't happened all of them hadn't happened when she wrote Frankenstein but some of them had and so she lived this lifestyle she was born into a lifestyle lived a lifestyle that she seemingly embraced and wrote about in this novel and yet she, as I said before, she she wrestled against it. Um, she she experienced, especially as a woman, um, the pain and trauma of this kind of lifestyle that everyone else around her just seemed to um, glory in. I mean, the men in her life were promiscuous and wanted you know, encouraged promiscuity in their partners, including um, her. And there was something in her that resisted this. Um, and later in life, she did become become more conservative and and more reflective on this. But it's easy for us, I think, especially as Christians, to look at people from this era and the lifestyle that they lived and just um, be um, judgmental and to be dismissive and yet to not understand um, the universal human longings and yearnings and desires that um, lay underneath them and to not follow the model that Shelley followed by examining our own sort of um, blind spots as well, because even if we are attempting to establish a life on, you know, a, a strong and true biblical foundation, we are still influenced by our culture as well in many ways and in ways that we can't always see. And so we should be as will, at least as willing as Christians to be as honest um, and probing as someone like Mary Shelley was, and to be willing to, to question, um, received with wisdom and received truth and and measure it um against obviously um transcendent eternal truth which shelley wasn't necessarily doing but we know that we have that available to us and i think her story her life story and her novel um are both excellent reminders of that dr Pryor, thank you so much for having this wonderful conversation about frankenstein with us thank you for having me it was delightful <laughs> <laughs>